Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to The District, a podcast about politics and culture from the spectator world. I'm your host, Amber Athey, and I'm joined by Christopher C. Miller. He served as the acting secretary of defense under former President Donald Trump, is a former special forces commander and proud Green Beret, as well as the author of the new book, Soldier Secretary, Warnings from the Battlefield and the Pentagon about America's Most Dangerous Enemies. Chris, thank you so much for joining the district today. Amber, thanks a ton for having me. You know, the only reason I wrote the book was uh, to get on your show. I've been trying to get an invite to the Spectators District podcast for ages now, so I had to write that book and to be with a fellow author. I know you got the Snowflakes Revolt coming out. I can't wait to read that. So really looking forward to having a chat and answering any questions you have. I really appreciate that. And we're really happy to have you on the podcast. And I'm sure we'll have you back uh, more after this as well. So let's start with the obvious, the elephant in the room or the balloon in the sky, as it were, with this Chinese spy balloon story. I understand that you have said to Fox News that you were not aware of or briefed on any similar incidents of a Chinese spy balloon entering U.S. airspace during the Trump administration. Is that right? True that. And to make it clear, I'm not doing some sort of Washington, D.C. insider tap dance where, you know, you say something, but it's like very loyally. I'm just telling you brutally, honestly, never heard of such a thing either in the United States or any of our facilities worldwide. So, yep, true statement and kind of like, wow, that's something for the record books, huh? You don't see that every day. Well, I guess it lasted darn near, what, five days? First first incident was like Friday, I think. Uh-huh. And I think the news story is that the balloons that supposedly entered the U.S. airspace during the Trump administration, which they're now saying happened at least three times, were not actually detected until after Trump left office, which is kind of puzzling to me. So maybe you can shed some light on the probability of the intel community not catching this until now. I was hoping you would shed light on it. So I got <laughs> I got up this morning, right? I knew I was going to be on your show. So I read all the papers. I read the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. I got online. I've been, I've been studying all this all day long. And I'm just getting more confused as it goes. So yeah, there was this kind of narrative that, oh, the Trump administration knew all about this, only to find out, well, no, it happened during the Trump administration. But the intelligence community didn't find out after they did their assessment until we left office. So I can't figure out what's going on. It sounds uh, sounds pretty crazy to me. And frankly, uh, I'll tell you, you know, that's one of the themes of my book is we spend $850 billion, That's a B, billion. That's a lot of money. You know, that, you, you know that that's over half of our discretionary spending, meaning that's the money that we have available to spend on schools and, and roads and, and uh, libraries and stuff. And we couldn't bring this doggone Chinese spy balloon down in a controlled way with all the capabilities we have. It's kind of troubling to me. 
That is troubling. And I I don't understand why it took five days exactly. I believe that the Biden administration's excuse is that when it was over the continental U.S., there was a safety issue, meaning the debris from shooting down the balloon could potentially hit people or cause damage to American property. But wasn't it over the Pacific at some point? And why wasn't it shot down then? Amber, I got to tell you, people that served with me in the military will say Chris Miller was never a great map reader. And I accept that criticism fully. I did look at the map and I saw the same thing you did. I saw it going over the Aleutian Islands and I saw this huge expanse of blue space, meaning water, where if our if our protective radar systems had identified it, which I sure hope they did, right? That's a problem if they did. But Mm -hmm. I feel confident they did, that we didn't take action at that point. I think that really requires a lot more uh, investigation because I'm 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 just not grooving with this whole description that's being put out right now. And I find I got more questions than I have answers, but uh, I think we all do, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, to me, the entire conversation surrounding the balloons apparently flying during the Trump administration raises two possibilities to me. And and they're both sort of equally terrifying. One is that these intelligence officials or administration officials, whoever they are, they're anonymous, so we don't really know, are lying to the American people for political purposes or it means the intel community wasn't apparently doing their job during the Trump administration and didn't properly catch these balloons. Which one do you think is worse? And and also, which one do you think is the more likely explanation for this? Amber, you just nailed it right on the head. I think of people in D.C., we have the scar tissue that uh, shows how this town works and how people are always talking out of both sides of their mouth. And either one of those scenarios that you just described is horrifying. One, that there were people in our government that knew about this, that did not report this up to the president of the United States, who I don't want to speak for President Trump because he can speak for himself. But I guarantee you, if he was told that we had a Chinese Bible and cross transiting the United States, he would have taken action in a little different way. And number two is, if we didn't know until after, what are we paying all this money for, for all these great sensors and satellites and radars? I mean, something's going wrong, which not the kind of jumping off subject. You know, that's really a concern that, you know, this is the most powerful foe we face and we don't know what they're doing. So do you think Trump would have shot down the balloon immediately? I can't speak for President Trump, but yeah. <laughs> is that what you would uh would have advised him to do there's this thing in the military where you dev- never uh second guess the commander on the ground in this case the commander was at northern command that's the command in the military that oversees the defense of the homeland i don't know what information he gave or what advice he gave but that's something that we need to find out mm-hmm. and why they made that decision so you don't want a money more a quarterback but i'll tell you what if president trump was told that i think there probably would have been a, a different decision made on that one and but here's the thing i come back to like like amber this balloon it's a balloon we sent up a hundred million dollar jet fighter really good fighter by the way f-22 great plane shot it down with a four hundred thousand dollar missile Come on, we didn't have another way to do it. My wife is hilarious. She goes, hey, you've got those 
aerial refuelers, these flying gas stations, why couldn't they have just flown over and dropped, you know, one of the gas fuel hoses down and snagged it? She was kind of being facetious, but the point is valid. It's like, come on, there are other ways to do this that didn't require us to go shoot it down with a, with a air-to-air missile. I saw plenty of great red-blooded Americans in Montana who I think were more than happy to take up the charge themselves. <laughs> so I agree, yeah. there probably was a better way. You know, Amber, and they all, I watched some of the morning shows today, and the shows on the left all criticized them as a bunch of backwards people. But I'm telling you, I think I, we could have found a, half a dozen people that could have come up with a better idea on how to bring that thing down, because that's the power of America, right? So I got I got a little uh, upset this morning watching those shows when they ridiculed those people. That's a, a real shame to hear that. And like you, I was reading all the papers this morning to gear up for our conversation. And I read in the Wall Street Journal that apparently these intelligence agencies are now planning to brief what they refer to as, quote, key figures from the Trump administration on the spy balloons that supposedly flew um, during those four years. And I wanted to ask if they had reached out to you. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. I can't wait. I doubt they'll be calling me. I was never supposed to be part of their little cabal, you know, on the E-ring or in the high-level meeting rooms of, of Washington, D.C. I'll be really curious if they reach out. I'll be surprised. You'll be the first person I call. How's that sound? I like that. That sounds like a good deal to me. Yeah, you're going to you're gonna get the lead on that one. And then we'll have another talk. <laughs> well, I always love to hear that as a journalist, so thank you for that. In terms of the balloon itself, can you shed some light on what its capabilities potentially are? And is it your perspective that maybe this was more of the Chinese testing what they can get away with? Seems that way. I don't want, I mean, we'll let the, a lot of different scenarios. We've heard a lot of them. You know, when you're, when you're, one of the classic things you always do to test your opponent's offense is probe them, right? And this seems like a classic example of that where they wanted to see our reaction. I've got to tell you, you know, talking China, though, maybe we're going to talk about later. I'm sure the Chinese are kind of confused by what's going on because the president says one thing on China, the Secretary of State says something else, the Secretary of Defense says something else, the Chinese fly you know, swarms of unmanned aerial vehicles and jets toward Taiwan regularly, we don't respond. And so I'm sure they're very confused. And they thought, heck, we can probably get away with it. I bet you they probably looked at our pullout of Afghanistan and said, these people have lost a step. Let's see if they see what they've got. And frankly, you know, they overflew the United States. What were they doing? I, I really have no idea. I assume that they were using their sensors to try to pick up on uh, on how we defend ourselves with our radars and our electronic spectrum and stuff like that. That's my suspicion. Mm. Well, you've perfectly led me into my next line of inquiry, which is about the Biden administration's posture towards China and their overall strategy and, and how you would compare it to your tenure during the Trump administration. Awfully consistent with President Trump. And uh, I think they they knew what our policy was and what our stance was and I think they probably were a little bit leery of President Trump. President Trump has been categorized by some as, you know, unstable. I didn't ever experience that in our national security and foreign policy decision making. But he certainly had, he certainly gave the impression, and I think he backed it up, that he was not someone to be trifled with. And I think that affected how they related to us. And the president recognized that economic 
competition was the key thing, not military, and use that as the primary mechanism for you know his national security and foreign policy direction toward China. And uh, you know we were remarkably consistent. And if you honestly, if you look at it, the Biden administration hasn't changed that much. That's interesting because I think a lot of people would probably disagree with you and suggest that either Joe Biden is weak on China or in the pocket of China. But I tend to agree with your perspective, which is that at least in terms of what they say, it seems pretty consistent. Yeah. And I didn't even want to go there with in the pocket of because I don't think that's fully been revealed to the connectivity between uh, a lot of the think tanks in Washington, D.C. and a lot of the figures in government right now that accepted money from the Chinese over the years. You know, that uh, you probably already reported on that, but there's definitely something of concern there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so didn't want to go all conspiratorial on you. I know you don't do that, but th- I, there's definitely something there. You know how D.C. works. Oh, yeah, of course. There's money flowing everywhere. There's no question about that. But... In terms of our larger strategy toward China, even getting away from the balloon situation, which is getting hopefully close to running its course in the media anyway, because it's a lot of the points being raised about it have have become quite silly. But this does, I think, you know, raise this larger question of how properly are we prepared to defend ourselves from China, both economically and potentially militarily? Yeah, I would never I would never count out two things, the resiliency of the American free enterprise system. Everybody counts us out and like, oh, remember, oh gosh, I remember when I was younger, you know, Japan just in time and uh, they had all these management practices and they were they were going to take take over the world and of course that never happened and now we hear the same thing about china i've got a lot of confidence in our our free enterprise free market and i would if they underestimate that frankly they have huge issues with uh centralized economy and whatnot uh but i'm not an economist i know i sound like did i sound like it I, you were getting pretty close bad. there yeah i mean I, yeah i read the wall street journal that's about the extent of my economic <laughs> background i was a history guy which now goes into a point about militarily i feel much more confident speaking about the military side seeing how i did it for 30 something years 38 years you know here's my ish is i think we're approaching china exactly the way they want us to and that's dangerous. Always do unexpected things to your opponents or your competitors or your enemies, however you want to describe it. And right now, they've set up this, you know, we are building these hugely expensive weapon systems, F-35 fighter, which is $1.5 trillion. We had all these aircraft carriers, and I think we're doing exactly what they want us to do, which is build these really exquisite but very few weapon systems because the world's changing. You know, now you can, you can kill a $1.5 million tank with a $2,000 drone. The cost curves off, you know, we bank, you know how we beat the Soviet Union. You know how this happened. They couldn't keep up with this technologically and we bankrupted them. Mm -hmm. I'm concerned that kind of the same thing's happening uh, with our approach toward China, that they're just kind of laughing as we build these insanely expensive weapon systems that probably won't last 72 hours if heaven forbid we ever get in a conflict with them. That's interesting. So what would be a more appropriate strategy as opposed to just building up technology? 
indirect approach. Don't do what they expect. What do autocracies and totalitarian governments fear most? What's Chairman Xi? What's Putin fear most? Instability. Mm. That's what they fear. What do they have to have to maintain their power? They have to have an enemy, a common enemy that they can show their people. This is why I have to stay in power. This is why you have to continue to follow me. And we do that every single time by being so overt with our, with our, you know, statements and how we do things. With China, I would be indirect. I would be, you know, use guise and and disguises, and I would use, you know, deception. And uh, frankly, they've got a huge population that's upset with uh, the current way things are going, and they're ripe for rebellion. That's a great point. I mean, we've seen the uprisings in Hong Kong and Taiwan, as well as the recent protests against China's COVID policy. It seems to me like they're not as much on the up and up as I think even Western media would want us to believe. Seems that way to me, too. That's my suspicion. And, and you know, I probably militarily speaking, let's be clear, the United States military is the most powerful fighting force in the history of the world. If it came down to it and the Chinese were dumb enough to take a crack at Taiwan, it'd be lights out for them. It'd take a while, but, you know, people underestimate the American, you know, the rage that can be built up. You know, Al-Qaeda did that. You know, Zawa here and Bin Laden are dead now. I'd love to, you know, well, they're in hell, but if you ever got a chance to talk to them, I bet you they'd say, man, uh, we messed up on that one. We should have never poked the stick in the hornet's nest of America. We we just want to be left alone, you know? Like, just mm-hmm. don't bother us. We just want to get along with people. But, man, when you, when you do something that attacks us and, and it, it's gloves off and it's, it's terrifying. And I hope I, I'm pretty confident the Chinese and, and frankly, the Russians know that too. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's, that's, that attitude actually is one of the things that maybe makes this indirect policy that you're proposing towards China kind of difficult politically, because when China pokes America over and over again, I think Americans and in the media even want to, see this really hard line stance and not really playing ball, so to speak. And, uh, and this indirect sort of policy, which we did see a lot from Trump, was often criticized as not being tough enough. Yeah, uh, you got there's, there's ways my, my point is, the things that they treasure, they, the leadership, the Chinese Communist Party treasures and tries to protect are very approachable by us, which is, you know, freedom, free markets, opportunity that will really, really, you know, th- th- that's what worries them at night, uh, not, you know, our bellicose anger, which only strengthens them in the minds of a lot of their uh, supporters. Now, your optimism about the strength of the American military is very well received, for sure. But you do talk in your book a little bit about the effect on some of the politicization of the military and wokeness in some of the training materials and how that affects combat readiness. So I'd love to hear your perspective on on some of the things that are going on there. I can guarantee. No, I don't want to guarantee you. That's too. That's too heightened language. I can't imagine. There are very few, if any, Americans who join the military to be part of the culture wars. They join because the military is a ruthless meritocracy where sex, creed, color, religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it doesn't matter. And 
It's only the strength of your character, how strong you are, how smart you are, and how hard you're willing to work. That's why people join the military. They don't join to get involved in all this cultural stuff that's going on. That's exactly the thing that they don't want to be part of. They want to be part of an organization that looks at the content character of your soul and and not all this other stuff. So anytime we start bringing all these other things in to our military, you know, it's confusing. And the focus of our military needs to be in war fighting. You know, I talk at real wars, not cultural wars. Mm-hmm. And it's just like those, those, we are so fortunate in this country to have, you know, young people that are willing to serve. And that this isn't what they want. They want to be left alone to focus on their job and combat readiness. Let's close this out with a fun question. And I don't want to hear this common response, which was, I can't share my conversations with the president. What is your favorite anecdote from your time serving under Trump? The funnest one was we were talking about where to put the United States Space Command. You know, that was the the Space Force headquarters. And the Air Force had done all this study, right? And it was down to three three locations. One was Colorado Springs. One was Omaha, Nebraska, and one was Huntsville, uh, Huntsville, Alabama. And of course, the, the, everybody thought it was going to be Florida, right? Everybody's like, this is going to Florida. So the president does the right thing. We make our recommendations and he goes, why not Florida? And the Air Force uh, civilian that did all the work was just great. He leans forward and he goes, hurricanes, Mr. President. And President Trump goes, what? There's hurricanes, Mr. President. We had to evacuate all of our military facilities in Florida three times last year because of hurricanes, and it gets really, really costly. And the president literally was like, of course, hurricanes. And people have said subsequently that the whole decision-making process was politicized. It wasn't. We followed the system to the letter. Uh, but that was just so funny. Because I, I honestly, I was like, oh, oh no. How are we going to square this circle? And he says, <laughs> I've decided on Florida. But, you know, that was kind of the essence of President Trump. Once you gave him the information and you presented it, he would think about it. And if it made sense, he would, he, he would uh, you know, always make a good decision. Well, there you have it, folks. We're talking to Christopher C. Miller. He was the acting secretary of defense under Trump and the author of Soldier Secretary. That book is out now. You can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble Bookshop, wherever books are sold. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, and good luck with your book coming out next month. Can't wait to read it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The District. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe to our channel. You can find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. To read more content on similar topics, visit thespectator.com.